If you did not hear the sermon last time we were together, which was four weeks ago, I would encourage you to go out on the website and download it and listen to it. Um, it will lay the foundation for what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, it's not on the podcast site yet because I forgot to upload it uh, before I went on, on holiday, but uh, I'll put it on tonight. And uh, if you have any questions, obviously you're always free to ask, but... Um, um, yeah, it would help if you have questions about the text tonight. Uh, it would help to go to go download that text and listen to it. So, I do want to begin with a quote tonight. It's a quote that I shared with you about six six weeks ago. In light of the fact it's the favorite thing I ever heard a man say or write who was not being used of God to write Scripture, I do come back to this quote a lot. This quote had a lot to do with changing my view fundamentally and forever about the greatness of God. So I do come back to this quote quite often. So let me share it with you. And I, before I do, let me just say this. I think it, has, it gives us some insight into what the Holy Spirit is saying to us from James chapter 2. You'll remember the quote as I, as I read it to you. John Piper writes, In creation God went public with the glory that reverberates joyfully between the Father and the Son. There is something about the fullness of God's joy that, it inclin- that inclines it to overflow. I want you to remember that sentence. There's a fullness to God's joy that inclines it to overflow. This is what we're going to be talking about th- tonight. There's a fullness in the joy of a born-again believer that inclines it to overflow. This is really what James is saying to us uh, last time we were together, and this time as well. Uh, the born-again Christian, as we talked about four weeks ago, if we're born again, it spills out, right? I'm so glad we sang that song. Change me from the inside out, we understand. That's exactly what God does. He changes us from the inside out. Now, continuing with Piper's quote, there is an expansive quality to God's joy. It wants to share itself. So the eternal happiness of the triune God spilled over in the work of creation and redemption. All of God's works are simply the overflow of His infinite exuberance for His own excellence. I love that quote. If you don't know God like that, you don't yet know Him in maybe one of the deepest biblical senses. He is a God of infinite joy. An infinitely happy God, as we talked about four weeks ago. That's who our Father is. Infinite exuberance. I looked the phrase up. We could call it joyous, joyously being, being joyously unrestrained. That's our God. I hope that you know Him like that. I hope that you understand. You know, the devil... He tempts us to sin because that'll make us happier. If we fall into the trap of sin because we think it will make us happier, we've not yet fully understood all that God has to offer to us, which is infinite joy and infinite happiness simply in who He is. You know what Hebrews 12.2 says, for the joy set before Jesus, He endured the cross. We're talking about infinite joy. 
The kind of joy that swallowed up the abasement of His condescension. That's God in the, the womb of Mary. That's God in the manger. Joy enough to swallow up the suffering of the cross. And joy enough to swallow up the degradation of a holy God becoming sin for His people. That's the kind of joy I'm talking about. You think sin can give you that much joy? You're wrong. You're deceived. Only God gives that kind of joy. I love this truth about God. Infinite exuberance. And it spills out. It's evident in the created order. And James is going to say to us, as he said to us four weeks ago, if we know this God, if we're born again of this God, if we're begotten of God, this kind of joy in life will be flowing out in our lives. It'll be overflowing in our lives through our faith as we do what God has called us to do. So we find this principle in the believer's life, this principle of overflow. Some of you will remember four weeks ago, um, I talked a lot about Sarah Grove. She's an American artist and she's got a song called Something's Changed. We talked about her lyrics and I love her lyrics. She says, something's changed inside me. It's broken wide open and it's all spilled out. Now, that was really the I guess the core message of what we talked about last time we were together. If we're, if we're truly in Christ, if we've truly been born again, it will be conspicuous. You know, as I often say to you, there are no, there's no such thing as an undercover Christian. It, you know, you simply can't hold it in. You must live out the Word of our great God. Sarah's singing about true conversion. She's talking about this overflow that comes naturally out of the heart of a true believer. Just as the eternal happiness of God overflows into creation and providence, the supernatural, born of God nature and joy and happiness, it overflows into the Christian's life. This is what James is saying to us. In this great text, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. If our Christianity is authentic, it cannot not be visible. It will spill out. It will overflow. It will be observable. As I told you four weeks ago, this is an important and timely message. As I alluded to earlier, uh, in much of what is called Christendom, uh, Christianity has devolved into simply mental assent to facts about Jesus, some religious activity, and maybe some church attendance if it's not too inconvenient. That's kind of what Christianity in many places has devolved into. God is debunking that in James chapter 2, 14-26. He is refuting it in the most clear language He could use. There can be no real misunderstanding here. Now, we understand that many scholars and PhDs with a bias and with an agenda come to this text and try to turn it on its head. But if we simply let the words mean what they mean, we understand clearly what God is saying to us. What passes for Christianity in most places today is biblically unrecognizable. And I want to say that again. 
what passes for Christianity today, Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, and many Protestant churches, what passes for Christianity today is biblically unrecognizable. It's biblically unrecognizable. God is going to tell us that real faith reveals itself in the world. Real faith works in the world. Real faith obeys God in the world. And as we saw in 1 Peter for the last 10 months, even if it costs, even if it's expensive, we let our faith spill out into the world that the world may see the greatness of our God. So this is what James is saying to us tonight. Authentic Christianity its always been provocative. It's always been uncompromising. It's always been extreme. It's always been a radical kind of thing. So as I told you four weeks ago, in this text, God is giving anyone who professes to be a Christian a reality check. Do you have the kind of faith that saves? We talked a lot about this the last time we were together. God says there is a kind of faith that that does not save. It's a dead faith. It's a useless faith. We talked a lot about that last week and I'm not going to rehash it. If you want to go out on the podcast site, you can revisit all that we said last week. God gives us a reality check. Is our faith genuine? Is it biblical? Is it God-giving? Is God-given? Is it saving? Is it overflowing and spilling out? Or... Have we been deceived by pseudo-Christianity? Are we just simply churchgoers? So this is an important word for us and for the church at large. Again, God is saying it as clearly as He can. If you look back over in James chapter 1, verse 22, you'll see that God says those who hear the Word but never do the Word are what? Someone tell me. They are deceived. We know that there are many who sit in churches in this modern era. They hear the Word, but they never do it. God says they're deluded. That's not a saving faith. Last week we saw James 2.14 and 17. God says those who merely talk are no better than those who merely hear. God says what use is it to simply talk? What use is it, God says? You can go back and look at that text. God says it twice, verses 14 and 16 in chapter 2 of James. He says, what use is that kind of faith? And God says, ultimately, it's no use at all. He says it's dead and useless. We, we talked about that great Eugene Peterson paraphrase. Uh, I think it's my favorite paraphrase of Eugene Peterson in the Message Bible. Uh, James 2.17, he says, Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? And beloved, it is outrageous nonsense. <laughs> to talk and hear and never do. It's a sham. It's a charade. If God is in our life, if He has regenerated our heart, if we are born again, the change will be visible. It will spill out. 
It will be conspicuous in the life. And four weeks ago, we saw that unforgettable illustration. At least to me, it's unforgettable. Regarding uh, the faith of mental ascent. Do you remember the comparison that God drew four weeks ago? He says, oh, you're orthodox? Great! Oh, you believe what I said? That's great! The devils believe it! Remember? The devils believe it! They believe everything I say. As we talked about, they're the consummate theologians. They know it's true and they tremble, James said last week or four weeks ago when we were together. God says it clearly. Three, uh, he tells us three things about this kind of faith without works. He says, verse 17 of James 2, it's dead. Then he, then he likens it to demon kind of faith or belief. Verse 19, and then in verse 20, he calls it useless. I think I told you four weeks ago that I love this text because I think a six-year-old can preach it. It's not hard. It's clear to understand. Again, only somebody with an agenda would try to make it unclear. So the Holy Spirit turns a corner on us in verse 21. Our text for tonight... He turns a corner on us. He's been talking about a faith that does not save. And now He shows us a faith that does save. So that's the corner that we're turning. Uh, I won't reread the text. You heard Mike read it. What we see here uh, in verses uh, 21 through 26, first, we, I just want to say that we know that James is writing to a, a scattered flock. Uh, a Jewish flock out of, uh, out of Jerusalem. We get that from James chapter 1, verse 1. But when James calls Abraham our father, he's not using this in an ethnic sense. He's not just writing to Jews. He's writing to Gentiles. I want to make sure that we understand that. Paul makes it clear in Romans 4 and Galatians 3 that all who believe, genuinely believe, are sons of Abraham. He's the father of all who believe. That's the connotation of what is being said here. So I want to make that clear. This is not an ethnic illustration. This is a spiritual illustration of saving faith. All who are justified by faith alone, their father is Abraham. Abraham was justified by faith alone. And Abraham's life is an illustration of that. Over Romans 3 and 4, Paul says that a man is justified by faith alone and he uses Abraham as the illustration. Did you notice in the text tonight that James also uses Abraham as his illustration when he talks about a man being justified by works and not simply faith alone? Don't you love it that the Holy Spirit uses the same illustration in both of these passages? These passages that people try to confuse and try to uh, stand on its head and try to mess it up and make, and make salvation into works. Men try to do that from this text. They say, well, you've got to work to be saved. That's not what God is saying. We do not become righteous through our works. Our works reveal our righteousness. Okay? It's not hard. It's not complex. People with, an, with agendas turn this text on its head. I want to make sure you understand that Paul and James are not at odds regarding faith and works and justification. 
Paul is not contradicting James and James is not contradicting Paul. That would be tantamount to saying that God is contradicting God. God wrote the Scripture. It does not contradict. So, I think it's important for us to really lay hold of this and understand this. I love it that Paul quotes uh, Genesis 15.6 and also James quotes Genesis 15.6 which is talking about Abraham being justified by faith alone. Abraham believed and what, what, what does the text say? God reckoned it to him as righteousness. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is the, the chant of the Protestant Reformation. It is the biblical gospel. We are not saved by works. That's not what this text is saying. This text is saying if we are saved, works will be manifested in our lives. Beloved, that's the clear meaning of the text. You know the word elucidation? James is elucidating Paul and Paul is elucidating James. It's simply a clarification, an illumination, and explanation. I'm going to reread the quote I read to you four weeks ago from John MacArthur on this point. Uh, I, I think it's interesting. I just want to uh, read it to you one more time. James and Paul are not standing face to face in confrontation, but are standing back to back fighting common enemies. Paul is fighting those who want a salvation to be earned by works. And James is fighting those who want a salvation that brings no change in the life. We've seen both of these errors in the modern church. They're both rampant in what is called the modern church. Men who say you have to do works to be saved, and men who say you can be saved, but you can just live like the world. It doesn't matter. You can call yourself a Christian. You can go out there and live like everybody else. It makes no difference. We've seen both of these errors in our modern times. Paul is saying salvation is only by grace alone. And James is saying salvation by grace alone will always produce works. There is no argument, disagreement, or tension between the two. Abraham's life beautifully illustrates the balance between faith and works that will be a reality in every Christian's life. And so... The question for you and I tonight is, have we been deceived? Or are we walking with God in true faith? If we are, as we talked about four weeks ago, the fruit will come. It's the metaphor Jesus used over and over and over and over again in the Gospels. The fruit will come! The works will come if we know the Lord. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He trusted the promise of God. He walked in the promise of God. He believed it was counted to him. That's what the term means, reckoned. It's an accounting term. It means it was counted to him as righteousness. It was credited to, to him as righteousness. It was imputed to him as righteousness. By, in, and through true faith, God imputes righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus to his children. Romans 4.2 says, If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. God has arranged it in such a way that no man can be saved apart from the sovereign grace of God. 
No man can. Because then that man would have something to boast about. You have nothing to boast about. Are you a Christian tonight? You have nothing to boast about. You just should be full of thanksgiving that God has shown you sovereign mercy and grace. He has given you the gift of faith, Ephesians 2, something. Eight, I think. Or ten, somewhere in there. He's given us the gift. He's regenerated our heart. Beloved, as I said four weeks ago, we just need to worship at this great salvation. I confess to you, I'm a religious professional. And I, I quickly will admit, I cannot manage salvation. I do not try to manage salvation. I do not try to give a man a formula and say, do these four things and I'll pronounce you a Christian. I don't do that. I tremble at that. We need to have some humility, as I said four weeks ago, about the supernatural nature of how God saves His people. If you read Romans 4, you realize it says that Abraham wasn't saved by his works, he wasn't saved by his circumcision, and he wasn't saved by the law. He was saved by God and God's mercy. Abraham was justified by faith alone. But here's the important distinction I want you to understand in James. James is not only looking at Abraham's faith in, in, in Genesis 15 when he made his confession, James is looking at Abraham's faith in Genesis 22 when he took Isaac to the mount. That's what James is looking at. He knows that Genesis, that the, 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 the faith of, of Abraham in Genesis 15 is real. He knows it's real because he can see it in Genesis 22. The same thing is true in your life. If the faith is real, it will be seen. As Sarah Grove says, it will spill out. As we've been saying, it will overflow into your life. The message paraphrase of, John, of James 2.23, it's good. I want you to listen to it again. This, the paraphrase in, in the message is not the Word of God. It's a paraphrase of the Word of God, but I think it's insightful what Eugene Peterson says here in his uh, paraphrase of James 2.23. He says, The full meaning of believe in the Scripture sentence, Abraham believed God and was set right with God, includes his action. It's that mesh of believing and acting that got Abraham named God's friend. Beloved, biblical Christians believe in such a way <laughs> that it, it informs their life. It spills out into their life. It's clearly seen by everyone in their orbit. It is clearly seen. No one should ever wonder, are you a Christian or not? They will know if you're a Christian. They will know. It will be evident in your speech, in your conduct, in the things you do, the things you won't do. It will be evident to the world. The eternal life of the believer overflows into the temporal life of the believer. The spiritual life of the believer overflows into the physical life of the believer. The supernatural life of the believer overflows into the natural life of the believer. You know, faith is like the wind. You can't see the wind. I, you, I say I have faith. You, you say, I, I can't see your faith, Jim. And the wind's the same. Well, you can't see the wind, but you can always tell the wind is here. <laughs> Why can we tell? We see it. 
We can see it blowing the trees. It's the same analogy. If our faith is real, it will be visible. God means for real Christianity to be visible in the world. How? By you. You know, I hear Christians opining sometimes. Why doesn't God do some great thing? And I say to them, why don't you live your faith? Maybe that's the great thing God wants to do. Live your faith in the workplace, at the university, in the school, at home, in your neighborhood. Live the Word of God. You're to be God's miracle. I say it to you all the time. We're supposed to be God's miracle. Are you God's miracle in the world, beloved? Are you God's miracle? Why doesn't God show Himself? He has. And He, he purposes and desires to show Himself through you out there that men would see the reality and the beauty and sufficiency of Jesus Christ through your words and your deeds. Why doesn't God show Himself? I'll put it this way. Why aren't you showing God through yourself? That's really what this text is about. That's really what this text is about. You remember what we said about the men and women of Hebrews 11? They were real men and real women with real faith in a real God making a real difference in the real world. That's Christianity. I'll say it to you one more time. Real men and real women with real faith in a real God making a real difference in the real world. That's Christianity. That's what God has called us to. The men and women of Hebrews 11 would enthusiastically join in with Sarah Groves and say, something's changed in me. I can't live small anymore. I can't live like the world anymore. I say it to you all the time. That's simply too small. It does not hold my attention. The things that the world prizes and seeks after, it does not hold my attention. It's too small for me. As Solomon said, I've got eternity in my heart. God's put it there and I've got to have God. I can't, I can't tolerate this little stuff. It's too small. Some of it's good and some of it's a blessing, but it's too small. It doesn't fill my soul. It does not fill my soul. So how do we know Abraham was justified by faith in Genesis chapter 15? Because it spills out in Genesis chapter 22 as he takes his son up the mount in obedience to God. It's a scriptural truth. We talked about it in 1 Peter. A God-given faith will be a God-tested faith. If your faith has never been tested, you might want to question whether it's a God-given faith. God-given faith will always be a God-tested faith. If you go back and look at Genesis 22, uh, verse 1, that's what it says. God tested the faith of Abraham. We saw it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Several months ago, as we made our way through 1 Peter, God says, take your Son Isaac, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. Now why is this a perfect test for Abraham? Um, if I gave you a minute, you could figure it out. Because all the promises that God has made to Abraham must come through who? Whom? Isaac. So what does Abraham think when God tells him to sacrifice him? First, I know he doesn't understand this at all. In fact, I'm sure he's quite confused. But what does the text say? He argued with God about this. He debated with God about this. He questioned God about this. 
No, what does the text say? He got up early the next morning and he headed toward Mount Moriah. That's what the text says. You know, Abraham's been walking with God about 50 years by now. And he trusts God implicitly. He doesn't understand why God has commanded him to do this thing. In fact, it seems contrary to the character of God. But Abraham just reckons, if we read Hebrews 11, he just reckons that God can raise Isaac from the dead. That's what he believes. He believes God so much that he just believes because God's made the promise. Really, Abraham's believing in Christ. Do you understand? Abraham is believing in Christ when he sacrifices Isaac because the promise of Messiah comes through Isaac. You have to understand, you know, the Old Testament saints looked forward to Jesus even as we look back. He's believing in Jesus. He's believing in Messiah as he takes his son up that mountain. But what did God do? There was a ram in the bush. I love it. There's a ram in the bush. You're afraid to believe God? Well, so am I sometimes. You know, if you're doing anything worthwhile in your Christian experience, sometimes you will be afraid. Sometimes it's much bigger than you. It's bigger than your resume. You've never done this before. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how it will work. The elders at my home church in Little Rock asked me, what's the church going to look like this fall? I said, I have no idea. Every year I have no idea. Every year it's by faith. And for 10 years God has shown... For 10 years people keep walking through that front door, praise God. Because if people don't walk through that front door, Karen and I got to move back to Little Rock. Which I really don't want to do. I love Little Rock. If I'm on tape, I love Little Rock. I love my grandkids and my family, my mother. I love being there, but... Beloved, sometimes... It's, yeah, it's dicey. It looks dicey in going with God. But that's what He calls us to. That's what He calls us to. And Abraham went to the place to sacrifice his son. I want to say this sentence. God's promises to Abraham were dependent upon a living, breathing, walking around, procreating Isaac. Not a dead, buried, decomposing Isaac. And he believed it. Even if he had to bring that knife down into his son's heart, he believed it. He believed that God was going to do a miracle and a mighty thing. He believed it. Beloved, do you believe it? Do you believe God like that? I ask myself, do I believe God like that? I want to believe God like that. We should believe God. We should. Four weeks ago, back in verse 17, we saw God told us that even so, faith, if it has no works, it is dead. Being by itself. And you may remember we tied that verse to verse 22 in our text this evening, which says, faith, His faith was working with works. As a result of the works, His faith was perfected. Faith is perfected in the works. This is what he's saying about Abraham. His faith was perfected as it overflowed into obedience. There's an interesting nuance, and I want you to hear me here. There's an interesting nuance in the Greek word translated justified in verse 21 to verse 22. The Greek word carries two general meanings. One, 
to acquit or declare righteous. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans 4. Uh, Romans 3 and 4, he's talking about being declared righteous by God to be justified. The second meaning is this, to vindicate or demonstrate righteousness. This is how the word is being used in James chapter 2. We are declared righteous by God through faith and then we demonstrate that righteousness as we employ our faith. One theologian said it like this, James is not talking about the original imputation of righteousness to Abraham. He's talking about the visible manifestation of that imputed righteousness in his life. There's really no conflict here. There's really no debate here. If we just let the words mean what they mean. And did you notice the beautiful comment at the end of verse 23? Abraham was called the friend of of God. <laughs> Isn't that what you want? Would that, is that not the highest aspiration? We know we're also called the sons and daughters of God. We understand that. But you know, there's something about a friend. I've said this to you before. I don't know if it translates well. I don't know if you fully understand what I'm saying. But there's one, it's one thing to love a member of your family. You know, you're sometimes obligated to love. It's another thing to like somebody and you like to be with them. You know, that's, to me, that's what it means when God is saying we're, we're His friend. He likes to be with me. You know? He, he, he wants to be with me. He wants to spend time with me. That's, isn't that the way it is with a true friend? I love what's communicated in that word friend, at least from God's perspective, as it's directed toward me. So, how does Abraham become the friend of God? What, is, what does Jesus say in John 15, 14? You are my friends if you do what I say. Not that you can earn uh, friendship by, by your works, but your works demonstrate that you're mine. Your righteousness in the world and in the church, and as you love this church and serve this church, and the church universal around the world, you demonstrate you are my friend. You demonstrate you are in relationship with me. And I want to close quickly and look at God's second illustration here about real faith. You might notice she's a harlot. Now, couldn't God come up with a more dignified illustration than a harlot? Well, I suppose He could. But if we read our Bibles and we know our Bibles, we understand that God loves this harlot. <laughs> she's mentioned in the most peculiar places. She's mentioned at least three times in the New Testament. Here, in the James text, she's also mentioned in Hebrews 11 as one of the, 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 in the pantheon of the Hall of Fame of Faith. She's mentioned there. And she's also mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus. God loves this prostitute. This says a lot about the grace of God, does it not? We understand how God used to compare Old Testament Israel to a harlot because they would have spiritual affairs with other gods. So we understand the significant symbolism of harlotry and prostitution in a spiritual sense. But God loves this woman. And it drives home a point that's important for us to understand. Justification is the same for everybody. 
whether you're a patriarch or a prostitute, justification is the same. Salvation is the same for all men or women, Jew or Gentile, patriarch or prostitute. It's all the same. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Basta! You don't have to add anything to that. But if you're saved like that, there'll be works in your life. This is all that God is saying. And He uses Abraham and He uses Rahab. I love, I love the dichotomy. I just, I think it's awesome. So, beloved, God has given us a reality check tonight. So I will ask you as your pastor, as, at least as you you know, pass through here tonight. I ask you lovingly, is your faith like Abraham's? Is your faith like Rahab's? Is it real? It's not just that you believe some facts. It's that God has changed you from the inside out and your faith is spilling out into the world that men and women might see it. And men and women might question you about your, about your awesome God. Is your faith visible, beloved? Are you proactively pursuing and believing the promises of God in your life? You know, God comes along and He makes individual promises. Sure, we have universal promises, of course, but He comes along and He makes a promise. He says, this is what I want you to do. And I will be with you. I will be with you. Are you willing to do what God is calling you to do in the world and in the church? God is clearly saying to us, My kids do what I say. Albeit, I always put this qualification in it, albeit imperfectly, there's none of us are perfect in doing Christianity. None of us. That's what grace is for. And when we fall and when we fail and when we sin, we confess our sin and we repent and God washes us clean and we get up and we go on with Jesus. So I exhort you tonight to live your faith in the world. Reminding you what Eugene Peterson says, God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense. So, for you here tonight and for all those many tens of people who are listening on the podcast site, um, no more nonsense, right? No more nonsense. As of tonight, stake in the ground, no more nonsense, no more playing games. I'm going to be a radical disciple in the Beloved, ultimately, that's what this is all about. We talk about it all the time. Verse 26 says, For just as the body without the Spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Do you get the imagery? Faith without works, it is a corpse. It is a corpse. It is a corpse. God says... Faith, if it has no works, it's dead. Faith without works is useless.
This is the Word of God. Tonight, we are going to celebrate God's table.